Uh, as I was preparing for this message, I was, uh, I was thinking about what's going on in, in the church right now, and, uh, and I was coming across, Paul. actually Travis said something in, in prayer this morning that reminded me of this, but this week I was thinking of you all and what God's been doing through your ministries, thinking of Marvin and Nora sharing their testimony, their small group, but, but looking around this room, I, I know many of you, I know your stories, I know your faithfulness and the, the level of leadership that you give to the different places God has called you to, and uh, today's message is all about being called into ministry, Isaiah, and, and this, this prophet Isaiah of the Old Testament, and what, it, what that moment was when he was called to ministry. And I can't help but, before I preach on what that means for us, to, to just look around this room and, and just encourage you as a church family, uh, to say as your pastor, I see so much faithfulness. It, it, just, it, it makes preaching on a text like this, on the call to ministry, the call to step into what God's called you to do, uh, it makes it really a joy for me because I see it in you. Many of the qualities and the qualifications of effective ministry that we read about in a chapter like this, you are living it out day in, day out. And I just want to say as a pastor, uh, well done. It's a really sweet thing to be a part of a church family that's doing this. Every Christian is a minister. Now, that doesn't mean every Christian is a pastor. That's a particular office within the church. But the word minister uh, means a servant, right? It, it, every Christian is assigned a ministry. It's not just for special Christians or for elite Christians. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, God has a call on your life, and he has equipped you with gifts, with stories, with personality, to pour all of who you are, all of your resources, out into the kingdom of God, to see the work of Jesus spread among the nations. And, and the question that I have for us this morning that I think our text is going to address is how, how do we become effective at that work? If that's true, that every single Christian has specific work, if every single Christian is assigned duties and responsibilities, what are the qualities that make for an effective minister? In Isaiah, in this chapter we just read, Isaiah has this vision. And uh, there's a handful of visions in the Old Testament, prophets having these unbelievable visions. This is a vision of the throne room of God. So, so just to back us up, to put us in the right kind of frame of reference here, Isaiah, this prophet, is caught up into, in, into God's presence where he, where he sees things that, that you and I in our life more than likely will not see until we pass into glory. And then we'll see it the way Isaiah saw it. But he for a moment was given a glimpse into reality, into God's presence and, and in that moment, something takes place, this transaction between God and between Isaiah, this transaction takes place that spells out for us exactly what the qualifications of a healthy minister are. And so I want to call out specifically from this text three particular qualifications. Number one is this. Effective ministers of the gospel must have an overwhelming sense of the otherness of God. I know that sounds strange, but bear with me. An overwhelming sense of the otherness of God. What is meant by otherness? Well, perhaps the right word that we could use is holiness. Certainly, that's going to be the primary key term. I'm going to hone in on this section. But holiness, I, I, I want to broaden that out just a little bit to make us understand this characteristic of God that he is entirely different than us. 
Sometimes when we think of God, we have very small thoughts. I think it was Augustine who said our thoughts of God are far too small. And, and that is what we do. We, we take these caricatures of God, these caricatures of Jesus, and, and then we have this image of who God is, and he's this, this kind of small, kind of jovial little character. But when we take Scripture for what it is, and we, and we actually read these moments where people were caught up in the throne room of God, what we see is that our image and our understanding of who God is is wildly off. And that smallness of our own image of God is what's causing us to be ineffective ministers. If we're going to allow our eyes to really be opened, to see God in all his reality, it would cause us to shudder, to, to almost come apart at the seams is what the, t- the language is for today. Whenever, uh, whenever prophets have a vision of God in the throne room, the scene is one where you recognize that the writer is straining to find human words to describe what they're seeing. That's, they, they've been ushered into a place where the rules that govern this world no longer apply. They're in a place where humans don't belong. That's, that's the context. That's the, that's the sense you get when you, when you read these passages, these, these visions these prophets had. Let's, let's, let's imagine the scene. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. High, very high and lifted. Maybe you've been to places where you've seen old castles and you've seen old throne rooms, how the king would sit up on a pedestal and it was a, a sign of authority. People would have to bow down underneath him. The scene here is that the king is high and lifted up. Imagine the prophet entering into the throne room of God and he is looking up at this throne that's up there, just towering over him. That's the sense of, I don't belong here. This is a supreme authority. This is not like the authority of a king or a president. This is something entirely other. The train of his robe filled the temple. This is an awesome sight. Many of you perhaps watched King Charles get inaugurated in as king a few months ago in England, and you saw the robe that he put on, this golden robe. It was a symbol of royal authority. The train of the robe that the king of kings is wearing in the throne room fills the entire temple. Oh, and and the, the, the way the language works, it's almost as far as the eye can see, is the train of the robe filling. That's the level of authority. It, he just, it's overwhelming. You're, you're, he's standing before a king that is unlike any other king. To be there is to suddenly know, I, I, I don't belong here. Whatever this is, the, just the robe is telling me, I should not be here right now. Above him stood the seraphim. A powerful king will be surrounded by his bodyguards, by his security. The president goes nowhere without his security protecting him. Around the king, around the king of kings, are the seraphim. The word itself means the burning ones. The language to describe them is almost otherworldly. We would describe them if we were to see them as monsters, But what it turns out is that they're angelic creatures. They're angels. They're a particular kind of angel that has a particular kind of job. And their job is to stand guard around the king of kings. They have two arms. They have two wings that are covering their face like this. They have two more wings that are covering their feet. They recognize that God is so holy that even their own eyes are not fit to behold the king of kings. And so they cover their eyes like this. You can almost imagine when artists have tried to draw this in the past, they almost look like flames because of the wings up and the wings down covering their feet. 
They almost look like flames with two other wings. They have six wings with two other wings. They're hovering in place. You recognize this is not of this world, but these are real. This is taking place right now. This is the real world that we live in, and the prophet Isaiah is being giving a glimpse into something that he's not supposed to be seeing with his regular eyes. He's unworthy to look at the king. Their feet are covered because they're, they're servants. They, they, they are not to approach him in a, in a particular way. They're crying this song in unison. It's this chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In scripture, when a, a word is repeated, it, it's, it's meant to draw attention to that word. Many words in the Bible are repeated two times. Many words are repeated two times. There's, there's examples in, in the scriptures where it's talking about a particular bowl that's made of silver, and, and the text said it was silver, silver. It was, it was, it was pure silver. It's, it's to draw attention to what the quality of that was. Only one time in all of scripture is a word repeated three times like this. And it's right here. This, is, this, is, this passage is then picked up later on in the Bible. But three times for the word holy. This is not just holy. This is not just holy, holy. This is holy, holy, holy. This is altogether different. That word holy, it means utterly distinct. It means set apart. It means morally pure, morally perfect. There is no blemish in him. He is the holy one. He is the holy, holy, holy one. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Commentators are divided what particularly that means. Does it mean may the whole earth be full of his glory? Or does it mean the whole earth is full of his glory? I think it means both of them in different contexts. I think it, it's almost a play on words. The whole earth, every square inch, no matter where you turn, is full of his glory. Were you to take a submarine to the deepest part of the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean, and you were to uncover sand that no human had ever seen before, what you would find is that that grain of sand was designed to bring glory to the king of kings. It was placed there. And were we not to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Jesus says the rocks would cry out. The rocks themselves, the grain of sand on the seashore will cry out holy because that's what they're designed to do. The whole earth is full of his glory. As the Lord spoke, the foundation of the threshold shook. If you're not getting a sense that this is an overwhelming scene, just imagine that when the king begins to speak to Isaiah, the whole earth shakes like it's an earthquake. The building, the foundations begin to rumble at the voice of the Lord. Isaiah can barely, can barely control himself. He's, he's, he's feeling the vibrations of God going through him as God speaks into him. He's so powerful that when he speaks, the heavens shake. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. If there was only one text we had in all of scriptures to know about God, if this was the one text we had, here's what we would take away, this is what we would know. God is totally other than us. He's holy in a way that, that, that the greatest saints on this earth, we're, we're talking about different things here. He, he is utterly different than us. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is perfect in all of his ways. We use language to describe God, our, our great textbooks of systematic theology. We, we, we describe the characteristics of God. But even those words are human words. They're accurate. They're accurate. 
but they're limited because they're describing a reality that is so far beyond human existence, so far beyond what human words can, can perfectly describe. They're accurate and yet even our perfect words of eternal and unchanging, immutable and perfect are, are limited in what they can describe of God. He's, he's totally other. A.W. Tozer, he wrote this. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and to taste the unapproachable, arises from the image of God and the nature of man. There is something inside what it means to be made in God's image, to be human, that desires that, to glimpse on the eternal. You can't escape it. This is why every culture in, throughout all of history no matter where you go, every culture has had false pictures of who and what God is. But out of that culture has arisen some vision of God. You cannot escape the longing for eternity that's in the soul of man. No matter where you go, you will find cultures just longing. What is it that's beyond us? And here in Isaiah 6, we're getting a glimpse of it. Isaiah 6 is pulling back the curtain. He's saying this, this is something like what's beyond it. This, this is that otherworldliness that your soul is longing for. A theologian from another age, Rudolf Otto, he described the holiness of God. He, he was, interesting book called The Idea of the Holy. He's trying to get a sense for what holiness means. And he's doing what he can in human language to just say it's a little bit like this, and it's a little bit like this, and it's a little bit like this. What lengthy book trying to get after this idea of holiness. And he coined this term, the mysterium tremendum. The mysterium tremendum. In Latin, it means the awful mystery. The awful mystery. And he's trying to get after this idea that God, God is not to be trifled with. It's, it's not just a mystery. It's an awful mystery. It, it's so far otherworldly that to get a glimpse of it should make you shake and shudder. It's different than us. He says the truly mysterious object is beyond our apprehension and comprehension. Not only because our knowledge has certain irremovable limits, but because in it we come upon something inherently wholly other whose kind and character are incommensurable with our own, and before which we therefore recoil in a wonder that strikes us chill and numb. Were I to be preaching, and along these walls, the seraphim were to appear, every one of you would fall down in agonizing fear. And they serve him. It's not about them. They serve someone else. And it's before him and his ultimate authority that the human soul ought to tremble in an overwhelming sense of he is different than me. He has authority that is different than what I understand. Rudolf Otto trying to describe this. He has a number of illustrations. He, he's trying to get after holiness. And, and, and he used one illustration that struck me, maybe because I was a rebellious young teenager at one point. He said, he said, you know, when young teenagers sneak into a graveyard at night, he said, think what you will about graveyards and about the mystery of graveyards and about the spirituality, all that. Think what you will about that. He said, here's what you know. That young teenager knows he is, he is trespassing somewhere where he doesn't belong. He is stepping into foul territory. He said, holiness is not exactly that, but there's something about that sense in that young teenager that I am where I'm not supposed to be. 
that is what Isaiah is experiencing in Isaiah chapter six. God is entirely other. God is entirely in control. Colossians chapter one, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. He's speaking about heavenly beings, thrones, dominions, seraphim, cherubim, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You wanna be an effective minister? You, you wanna take hold of what God made you for? And you wanna give your life to something that lasts in eternity? Here's the first quality, the first qualification. You must have an overwhelming sense of the otherness of God. It must cause you to tremble. I'm doing all I can with the limited words of who I am as a person to inspire in you a sense of God's otherness. I'm trying to paint a picture for you of a reality just like Isaiah did when he wrote these words and he gave you a glimpse of what he saw when God let him into the throne room of God. I know these words, that it's trying to inspire your creativity. It's trying to inspire your imagination so that you will have a right sense of who God is. A.W. Tozer, again, he says this. He says, to admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Has God's holiness penetrated the core of who you are? I want you to think about your own prayer life for a moment. And you know, I think in, in when you develop your prayer life as a Christian, it's very easy to get caught into the rhythm of what is good, which is asking for things. And God delights in our asks. God loves simple prayer, coming before God like a, like a child who's asking good things from his father. Yes, overwhelmingly, that is a part of the Christian faith. But when you lose a steady stream in your prayer life of, remind, of letting God be holy before you, and of letting his authority wash over you and put you in your place, we have ceased to know God on his terms. We need that steady diet. Let me ask you, do you have that? Do you find yourselves at times often caught off guard by the majesty of God, just stepping back and letting something like a, a sunrise or a sunset just spark your, spark your heart to say, he is holy, he is different than me. Look at what he creates do you ever have those moments? Do you ever have a, a curiosity of God, a, an inward sense that were you to spend eternity studying everything you could about God, glancing at him for, for an eternity, you still would not know all there is to know about God because he's different than us. We'll have an eternity to learn about God and it still won't be enough. There will always be new things to learn. He's holy, holy, holy. Do you have a fear of God? When you pray and, and, and when you're thinking of, of who God is, is there a rightful fear that the one who you, whom you claim to know is the one who is over your judgment and over heaven and hell? He is the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. Not one atom in the entire universe moves without his sovereign and providential hand guiding it. So when you pray, does it, does it overwhelm you? That's, that is who you are. If you want to be an effective minister, that has to be a steady stream in your heart. We have to regularly say, God, I, I need to have you expand my vision of who you are. We need to have an overwhelming sense of the otherness of God. But secondly, 
First, we, first, first we need this overwhelming sense of the otherness of God. Then second, then we need a, a very clear understanding of our own lowliness, of our own lowliness. We set our eyes heavenward. We're trying to get reality proper, reality correct. And now we need to look inward and make sure we're understanding who we are. We've seen God. Now, now what about us? Only one verse is given of how Isaiah responds the moment he sees this. He responds the way everyone else responds when they see the holiness of God. Ezekiel did this. John did this. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah says, woe is me. That's how you respond. Woe is me, for I am lost. The word there is undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king of the king, the Lord of hosts. He says, woe is me. The language there is, is I am ruined. I'm done. I'm coming undone. Isaiah's seeing reality. It's so overwhelming. The idea of coming apart at the seams, you know, we don't have seams physically, but it's this idea that we kind of do. We're a created being And were we to stand before the holiness of God and see it for what it is, we would come apart as if we were a toy. We're just created. The bolts would come out and we'd fall apart. That's how holy he is. He says, I'm undone. I can't survive in the presence of God. Why not? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Immediately, he's seeing the one who sees transparently through his heart and his soul. And he's saying, you see what's in there? And I think I can be in here. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's getting to his heart. He's saying, he's saying, when I stand, I I can deceive a lot of people with making myself look good. I can deceive, I can deceive all of you and make myself look better than I am. But when I stand before the king of kings and he sees transparently through this soul And that king of kings, in my judgment, will determine where I go, heaven or hell, for all eternity. And he sees exactly who I am and exactly what I thought. And he knows that I know that he can see all of it. The only thing I can cry out is, I'm done. I'm aware of my sin. I stand underneath the law of God. And whether or not I believe in God, that has nothing to do with where we will all stand one day on our judgment before a holy God as that judge stands over us and he sees to our heart and we will be weighed according to his law. It's not whether we think his law is the law of the land. It is the law of the land. That is the governing principle. And when we stand before a holy God, he will judge us according to it. And the only thing that we will say if we were to stand alone on, on that day, is woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm done. I deserve nothing other than judgment, says Isaiah. Not only because of my sin, but I, I dwell in the midst of a filthy people. He said, look at, look at this society. He's, he's speaking on behalf of Israel at this point. And now we, as a community, speak on behalf of Chicago. We say, we, we, dwell, in, we dwell in the midst of a sinful people, God. We, we, can, we, can, we can critique culture all day. We can say, look at how they're getting it wrong. But until we agonize over it, we haven't understood Isaiah 6. I dwell in the midst of, a, of an unclean people. Until, it, until that sin of the city that we live in pierces our heart 
And we go before a holy God in agony and say, God, I know you see it all and you're holy and there is judgment. We haven't gotten Isaiah 6. We're not just playing critique culture. That's not the goal. The goal is understand reality. And there is a holy God who sees transparently through it all and judgment will come. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are hopeless unless someone else steps into our place for us. We cannot save ourselves. There is no amount of trying to make amends for what we've done before that holy God. There's no amount of paying off our debt before that holy God. He sees it all. He knows our heart. The condition is too flawed. It is done. It is over. Isaiah in this moment is not desperately pleading for help. That's not what he's doing. He's given that up. Isaiah is not saying, give me one more chance, God. He's not saying, if you let me live, I'll, I'll, I'll do everything right, I promise. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I'm done. I'm about to get what I deserve. We cannot be effective ministers of the gospel until we fully understand that that is our own condition before a holy God. We are done. Before a person can come to Christ, we must realize the complete and total hopelessness of our condition. It is not just that we have sinned. It is not just that we have sinned lightly and that there is something that we need to make up. It is that we have sinned totally. We have disobeyed his law and there is a right judgment. And the consequences of our sin are not just that they have brought difficulty and hardship into our life, but we have brought sinfulness into the world around us and we have brought more sin into God's creation and we have been an affront to a holy God. You can go down the street from here and find a handful of teachers a handful of pastors that are preaching as I speak right now, and they are saying the exact opposite message. There are a handful of churches I can point you to them if you want to know where they're at. And the message you will get right there right now is, you are great just as you are. Just look at the authentic you. We were walking by a church that we used to know very well just this week, big sign. And basically what the sign on the front of the church said is, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you're like, doesn't matter, you, as long as you be the authentic you, you're gonna, you're gonna be great here in this church. And at, I, I walked past the sign, I said, what is this? What is this? It is not the Bible. The Bible is not saying, here's just how to be a better version of you. Isaiah chapter six says, one day we will stand before a holy God, he'll see through our hearts, and we are sinful and in need of help outside of us. These teachers are leading people to hell very quickly because when they get and when they stand before that holy God, they will not get the excuse of saying, but my pastor told me so. That's not an excuse. We will all give an account. Hebrews chapter four. That's why, they, that's why the Bible says, do not, not many of you should become teachers because you start leading people astray, I don't want to stand before that judgment. My job is to tell you what the scriptures say. They will say that you are free to worship God however you want. They will say you are free to be whoever you want to be. They will say God will let you off the hook for any mistakes you have made simply if, if you just you know, start doing more good and try to be a better person. That is not the scriptures. It's religion made easy. God is not a false doctor. Imagine if you will, imagine if you went to a doctor 
and he does all the scans on you. Say so you come in, you say you had some stomach pains, and he does the scans on you. And he goes and he meets with his doctors and nurses. He looks at his scans and he realizes you, you, have, a, you have a stomach cancer that's gonna take your life. You've got a year to live. And that doctor then comes to you and he, he, he walks you into a room. He says, everything's going fine. Just continue. You know, he doesn't tell you about the condition. He just says, everything's fine. You're okay. You're okay. Just, just go on. You'll be okay. It's, it's just gonna pass. That little pain you're feeling, it's nothing. You'll be fine. A year from then, when you're lying on your deathbed, would you not have wished that the doctor who took the scans would have said to you, there's a problem, and you don't like this news, but we need to work on it right now because you're gonna be facing death real soon, but we can fix that if we get after that hard work right now. Everyone would wish the doctor told them the truth. Everyone. God is not a false doctor. He does not look at your soul and then leave you believing something false about who you are. He sees you underneath the law of God and he says the condition is worse than you admit. You need someone to step into your brokenness for you. You need a savior. You cannot save yourself. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus tells the story of two men who prayed. I love this little story. We, we miss it. It's such a short little story. But Jesus tells the story of two different men who prayed. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that was the religious leader of the day, and the other a tax collector, that was the chief sinner of the day. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here, because I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I, I get. But the tax collector, now contrasting that with the tax collector, standing far off, right? So why is he standing far off? He, he is afraid to even go by the Pharisee. That's how unclean he feels. He says, I'm not even worthy to go near that religious man. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. He's beating his breast. Be merciful to me, God. I'm a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The seed of false religion is self-righteousness. The seed of false religion and the seed of every religion outside of Christianity that has ever been offered to the world is self-righteousness. Here's how you can be a person whom God will say, well done. You live this way, you follow these certain rules, God certainly will look down on you and say, you did it, that's what I was aiming for, way to go. Because of your actions, you can now come into heaven. That's called self-righteousness. I will get my life into order and God will then be pleased with me. The Bible paints an entirely different picture. It says when you see your soul and your condition, it's a condition of total depravity. And what needs to happen to you is that someone needs to step into your place and give you a new birth, an entirely new heart. And until you have a new heart, there is only one judgment that comes to you. And so I wanna, I wanna test this right now with, with each of us in this room. I'm gonna, in just a moment, I'm gonna, we're gonna look at the atonement and what God offers to us through Jesus Christ. But do you have a sense of your unworthiness before a holy God? This is a qualification for Christianity, not even for effective ministry. It, to become a Christian, to know who Jesus is, you have to know this. Do you rightly evaluate sin in your life? Whether sin in, sin in thought or in action or in your conscience, to, does it cause you to, to actually beat your chest like the tax collector? and say, I, I know it's there, God. I'm aware I'm guilty before a holy God. 
Do you have a regular practice of grateful repentance? Not like whipping yourself with whips. That's not what repentance means. Repentance means going before a holy God like Isaiah and saying, I am a sinner. Reveal in me the brokenness. If you don't have a steady stream of repentance in your life, you, you don't get this yet. Because you're going through all of life thinking that, that I'm, I'm better than I am. Let me make this real practical. Self-righteousness. Let me, let me get it beyond the spiritual. Actually, the way you live your life. Do you delight in taking the lowliest duties? See, the person who says, yeah, I, I'll take the lowliest duty, that's a person who does not think of themselves higher than they ought. That's a person who's gone before a holy God and says, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. And one of the fruits of that person's life is they, they rejoice in taking the lowliest duties. Yes, I'll do the dishes. Yes, I'll put the stuff away. Yes, I'll set the Bible table up. Yes, I'll go sit with that person that I don't really want to sit with, but, but of course I'll do it because they need it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to spend my time there. Why? Why? Because I don't deserve anything. I'm not high and lifted up. He's high and lifted up. Do you rejoice in taking the lowliest duties? These are signs that you're beginning to understand what this means. Do you easily forgive others? This is, an, this is practical, right? This is as simple as it gets. If you have a hard time forgiving other people for their sins against you, it means that you haven't gotten this total depravity thing yet. If you have a hard time looking at someone who's wronged you, now we're human, this takes some time, but if you have a hard time and you, and you just can't release a grudge and you, you, you can't bring yourself, or even you're not actively forgiving, you just let it go, what that means is that there's a self-righteousness air about you and you still don't get it. You still don't get it between you and God. The, the person who understands their condition before God and what Christ has done to forgive them, that must flow out in a sense of, I will easily forgive other people. But if you can't easily forgive others, self-righteousness is still ruling your heart. You see, this way of Christ, first we need to fully understand who this holy God is. It's other. He's entirely other from us. Then we need to see ourselves, and we need to understand that we are done. We are done unless God does something to rescue us. Finally, number three, we need to have a spirit of wonder at God's atonement. A spirit of wonder. Christianity should never grow old. It should always just leave you breathtaking that God would do what he did to rescue you from your condition. Verses six and seven, then one of the seraphim, look at the scene, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. So there was an altar. Earlier in the scene, the whole room was being filled by smoke, right? And then the, the seraphim takes with tongs one of these burning coals and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The seraph, remember, the, the word means burning one, now goes to the altar. Now this altar, what was happening on this altar, we're not entirely sure, but this we do know, it's pointing forward to the final altar towards Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that was made on the cross. Something about what this altar meant, where this burning coal was being made, symbolized was a type pointing towards Jesus on the cross. And he takes this burning coal and he sears it. Notice the pain of this. He sears it on Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah stands there as one who has already accepted his death. And he lets this burning coal wash over his lips. And something happens in that moment that changes him all the way from the inside. The seraphim look at him and God looks at him and says, your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. Imagine Isaiah in that moment. God's applying this 
coal to his mouth. Why to his mouth? Well, Isaiah would end up being a prophet. He could have applied it to his heart. It would have meant the exact same thing, but particularly Isaiah is gonna use his mouth to speak the oracles of God. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the first thing he knew. The first thing he knew, he said, these are lips that are unclean. The seraph comes and he sears those lips. And what he's doing is he's washing atonement over all of Isaiah. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The cleansing fire of God cleanses Isaiah of all that he had done wrong. And all of a sudden, Isaiah is no more coming a part of the scenes. The very next thing we see Isaiah saying is, I'm gonna, I'll go on your behalf, God. If this is what you've done for me, now, now send me. Send me, God. I'm entirely new. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice on the cross. He's the final sacrifice that stands between a holy God and a sinful people. And when a person places their faith in Jesus, the only person that had ever been sent to atone for sin, that's it. There is no other means made available on heaven or earth where ungodly people can stand before a holy God but Jesus Christ. What happens is exactly what happened to Isaiah. Just like the the, the coal got placed on his lips. When you put your faith in Jesus, God takes of the altar that was the cross where Jesus was, and he takes that blood, just like that burning coal, and he applies it all over you. He applies it to your heart. He applies it to your mind. He applies it to your will. He applies it to every part of you. Wherever sin had seeped into you, God takes the offering of the sacrifice that was Jesus, and he places it over your soul, and he causes you to be born again. And when you place your faith in Jesus, it's receiving that. There's no greater confidence that you can have to stand before a holy God than to know that the one who God sent to take your place under the, under the wrath of God stands on your behalf. That's it. Look, every one of us are gonna stand before a holy God, every single one. And if you don't have Jesus standing on your behalf, his blood on the altar being cleansed, cleansing your sin, if you don't have that, you're standing on your own. But his blood perfectly covers your sin. And what that drives in the human soul is this overwhelming confidence to stand before God. That, that, this is why the, the cross should always be breathtaking. It should always be remarkable. It should awaken new life in you. There's no greater contentment than you can have than knowing God looks down on you and you are fully justified before, because of what Jesus has done. You can go through all of life. Look, if you go through all of life and you never accept Jesus... All of life, there will always be the haunting reality. When you get alone, there will always be the reality that something is not right. Because deep down in the image of God inside of you, you know you stand before a holy God who sees through you. You know it, everyone knows it. And then when you're alone, and when you're going through hardship, and you get alone with God, you will have the sense that it is not right. But if you place your faith in Jesus, then there is a confidence that builds up in your soul when you are alone, when you are going through hardship, when you're going through devastation in life, that builds up inside of you that says this, I don't know everything that's happened to me or why it's all happening, but this I know. God is fully pleased in me because of what Christ has done on my behalf. I've been born again. And that gives a confidence. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, oh, get, to get the cross in one's heart, to bear it upon one's soul, and above all, to feel the glory of it in one's whole being is the best education for a Christian missionary. He's speaking to all Christians here for a Christian missionary, whether at home or abroad. That you have such a sense of the streaming wounds of Jesus that you may hate your sins and loathe yourself 
that you should have crucified such a blessed friend. And may you, with eyes suffused, with floods of penitential tears, declare that for Jesus and for Jesus alone, only you will live and die. How does Isaiah respond to this? Isaiah looks up to God. God says, who will go? Who, who will I send? And now with an entire new sense of who he is, he was undone, he was dead. Now God's atoned for his sin. He's, he's looking at God with overwhelming joy and he says, I'll go? How could I not go on your behalf, God? The natural impulse of a Christian is to respond to, go, to God and say, I will go, send me. Every follower of Christ has been sent as a minister of the gospel. If you're, if you're a Christ follower in here, you have a calling on your life. And it doesn't mean that you have to go overseas to Turkey or to Uganda or wherever you're going to be a minister of the gospel. It happens in your offices. It happens in your family. It happens everywhere you go. And the overwhelming impulse of somebody who has accepted Jesus Christ is, God, if that's what you've done for me, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. That's it. That's my life. I'll go anywhere you tell me to go. I'll do anything you tell me to do. And then we live in this communion with God where he directs our steps and he changes everything about our perspective on life. Do you find yourself in your heart of hearts at times just thinking, God, what would you have me do today? What, what would you have me do today? That's, a, that's the simplest application you can possibly receive from Isaiah chapter six. God, if this is what you've done for me, where would I go today? Who would I love today? How can I look otherworldly to the world around me today? Who can I love today? How can I serve somebody? How can I go to my kitchen today before the day is over, prepare a meal for someone who needs it today? Why, why, why would I do that? Because of what you've done for me. Everything has to be different if that's who Jesus is. Every true Christian is a minister sent by God, equipped for every good work. But not every true Christian is an effective minister. Many Christians will go through their whole life being very ineffective at ministry, wasting opportunity after opportunity. And it's not just a series of skills that you need to learn. You need to understand the gospel. You need to be wide-eyed with wonder at the holiness of God. You need to be overwhelmed at the depravity of your own sin. And you need to keep coming back, God, I'm a sinner. And then you need to be stunned by the majesty of Jesus and what he's done to forgive you of your sin and grant you a new heart. And if you get those three things right in your life, God will work through you powerfully. It will just naturally flow out of you the love of Christ. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We can't help but kind of be in wonder at a passage like this. We feel just reading the text that we're being given moments to see reality that maybe we shouldn't be seeing, like we're stepping on holy ground. God, I pray that you would grant us a, a soul, a soul condition that is not content for small images of God, small visions of God, small lives, small callings. God, I pray in this room for every single person that you would grant us an Isaiah 6 vision for our life, that you would grant us the, the humility to know that we are not God, that we stand before a holy God and that we will one day stand before that judge and we will see exactly what Isaiah saw and that we would make good use of the little time we have here on this earth, that we would not waste our moments, that we would rejoice in who we are in Christ, adopted sons and daughters of the King. It's not because of anything we've done, because of what Christ has done. I pray in Christ's name.